0: Hello, and welcome to What Our Point Weekly, where we bring together a variety of perspectives to discuss the biggest stories of the week and decide what our point, or if in fact there are no point at all. Today is Monday, May 4th, and we have here Ben. Hello. And Dan. Hello. And we have a special guest today. This is Alex Voach. He is a political consultant from the New York state area.
1: How's
0: it going? So to start us off, let's do politics. So Dan, what were you saying before we started? Something about a political candidate rising in the polls?
2: Right. So one of the big kind of under-the-radar betting markets that, uh, Alex, I'd love to hear your take on is that Andrew Cuomo is now, I think, up to second most likely to be the Democratic nominee for president in 2020, thinking that his coronavirus response and him being front and center compared to Trump means he'd be the perfect candidate for the Democrats to take them to victory. He would obviously love that as, you know, some would say, one of the more vain politicians in the history of the world. Do you have a take on is he going to make a sneak bid? I think it was interesting, kind of fueling the rumors, he hired Michael Bloomberg to run a big part of the reopening for New York. And so there's a theory that Bloomberg's billions plus Cuomo's leadership in New York is the one-two ticket for the Democrats. I'd love to hear your take on that.
1: Well, it's interesting that you bring up Bloomberg, because I think Andrew Cuomo has denied that he would be running for president more times than any other New Yorker in history, except for possibly Michael Bloomberg, who, as we all know, eventually did it. So maybe those denials aren't the end-all be-all. But I do think that this is a pipe dream for people that may be enamored with the governor's recent press conferences on a daily basis. And there's a few different reasons here. First and foremost, I think, is is Cuomo himself. While in the right situation, I think he would consider vice president, he's been an executive for the better part of his political career, from HUD secretary to New York State attorney general to governor. He has always been in the executive role. I think it'd be very difficult for him to uh, play second fiddle to someone, even though it oh, is no, on a it, national
2: stage. Just to, to pause right there, I think that's what the presumption is that he would not be second fiddle, that he would... Uh, push aside Uncle Joe, take the nomination at the convention. So
1: that's interesting. I think that that may even be more far-fetched than him being considered for a vice presidential slot, though. He's shown a reluctance over the course of his career to actually take that kind of plunge. And in order to do something like this, you would have to throw yourself all in, and you would have to make a lot of enemies to do something like – Manipulate a convention where you could get enough delegates from all across the country. Cuomo has never been huge on the national scene while he has a good reputation. He's been somewhat active in the governor's conferences. He hasn't played that DNC game of making friends with all the right money people with all the DNC members from around the country, just because it wasn't something that always interested him. And that was one of the barriers for him jumping into a presidential race in the first place. So I don't think that he would have the uh, audacity to to do something like this. It would either be sink or swim. You either get it or you're basically a pariah to the party if you fail. And he is close with Biden. So that that is well, I think uh, the only way I could see it happening would be if for some reason Biden felt like he needed to step down and the party turned to Cuomo in a sense, to say, hey, can, can you be the one who unites us right now? Which, again, I, I think is probably a long shot uh, at this stage in the game.
0: How, how do you see, from a more uh, objective angle, Cuomo's response to the pandemic so far? Has it been as sterling as everyone says?
1: I think that you can be the confident, calm, honest, straightforward leader that people need to hear and need to see, and still be wrong on the policy while you're doing it. So it's not mutually exclusive that he's loved for the press conferences that he brought in, and particularly when he's compared to our president and our mayor here in New York City, who seem like they don't have their stuff together, you can't really trust what they're saying, they don't know what's going on. Cuomo looking into that camera and speaking directly to the people every single day, giving them facts, giving them exactly the truth of what's going on, and providing a sense of calm and control was amazing, and it's what people needed in the time. But that said, when we look back on this and we look at what New York State did compared to other states like San Francisco and certainly what other countries did, New York was really, really delayed in responding, in shutting down schools, in starting to put together the coordination between public and private hospitals that was going to be necessary, and sorry, the procurement process for equipment. So... While Cuomo was the right leader from a personality standpoint, the policy, I think, ultimately and the failure of New York compared to the rest of the country will will change the picture when when historians ultimately write the page on it.
0: Let's just say Cuomo doesn't perform a coup of the DNC and he then bides his time and maybe runs in four years. Wasn't he almost kicked out of office for his corruption allegations? Whatever. Is that just completely gone?
1: Yeah. I mean, he was investigated in a few things, particularly surrounding the Moreland Commission, which was a supposedly independent commission by the governor to investigate corruption in the legislature and in the executive office. Well, when the Moreland Commission started to get a little bit too close, the governor basically disbanded it. um, And one of his top lieutenants, Joe Prococo, went to jail over a variety of things. I don't. I always hesitate to compare the Cuomo family to anything mafia related, but Joe Percoco, um, you know, took the blame for everything, took it all on himself, and didn't rat anybody out, and that's kind of how his inner circle has been. So the conversation has more been around like what does Cuomo know? No one has really accused him of enriching himself, but certainly of some people in his circle doing some things that were a little bit corrupt, and Cuomo really just being a little heavy-handed where he shouldn't be to retain power and influence, that's kind of run of the mill for, for New York State, certainly at this point, um, I don't <laughs> know, around the country. I, I mean, we're the state that well, the leader our, our Senate and our Assembly both went to jail multiple times over in the last decade. So I think
2: we're past it. I think we really are with him, corruption-wise. So I guess maybe I want to push you a little bit on, because I I think that one of the maybe scary lessons of this is if you're someone like Andrew Cuomo, or you're trying to get more notoriety for yourself, that as long as you seem competent in fixing the problem, you don't get blamed for creating the problem. And because I even think Trump, I don't think I would say he's getting blamed for causing the problem. It's that his response to it has been so poor. And so to you as a political consultant, maybe whisper to an executive saying, hey, you know, if a problem kind of gets going and you solve it, that might mean you're a in for re-election for the rest of your life.
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. And I think that's what was so impactful in this presidential race was this crisis could have been the tipping point for Trump. It could have been the thing that defined his entire presidency in a positive way, even if he had nothing to do with it if he just lucked out and the virus turned out to not be that bad he could have taken all the credit and looked great on it he certainly got that first initial bump which any leader tends to do in a crisis who's dealing with it and the longer that this drags on and the more that failures become apparent compared to the rest of the world then i think it will start he'll start getting stuck with it just the same with cuomo the longer that this drags on in new york the less he could say look i'm the i'm the white knight here
2: Do you think, so Turner, you brought up President Trump. So one of the things I think was an amazing New York Times story from last week was that he had the head of the RNC and his campaign manager come in and they showed him some, they were (laughs) briefing him on the state of the campaign and they both showed him losing to Vice President Biden. And he at one point started screaming at his campaign manager, I'm going to sue you for stealing all my money and doing such a bad job because I'm obviously going to get reelected. So have you, can you maybe talk about like when you're giving feedback to a candidate and you say to them, hey, you're losing. And have you ever had someone turn around and say, I'm going to sue you for doing a bad job? I, ha- I have not had any of my clients
1: go uh, so as far as to sue me. But there are a lot of elected officials on both sides of the aisle where they wanna take all the credit when things go well, and the first thing they do when things go wrong is to look for someone to blame instead of looking in the mirror. And those are people that, while they can rise, usually don't stick around for too long. They alienate their staff. People don't wanna do a good job for them and work for them. And I think this can be just as common on the Democratic side as as on the Republican side. And if Trump is already having these issues, that is not gonna bode well. You know, We saw with his presidential cabinet so far and his staff historic turnover levels. When you do that on a campaign, you lose momentum, you lose efficiency, you waste money, you have to reinvent the wheel. If you see a campaign doing a shakeup this close to an election, that's a problem for the campaign.
2: I'm very, I thought it was amazing when he was saying that the internal polls from the RNC and the campaign that he's raised the money and paying for are all wrong and he's gonna win. But I think it's actually, (laughs) I think on kind of the larger perspective, you know i think people think that in 2016 there was obviously you know you could call it a polling error you could call it that no one really saw that hillary would win the popular vote by 3% and still lose the electoral college and right. so people kind of expect that to happen again but we're at a point now where you know when we're we'll 5 months out from the election where president trump is polling an average of 6 points down versus vice president biden right. and That is something that was like not really seen at this point in the campaign. Hillary and Trump were like a point or two apart, not six points. And so it is kind of crazy, the dynamics. I don't know if you have any thoughts on some of the swing state polls that have come out.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, polling is going to be so difficult in this era. But when you do look at compared to four years ago, it certainly gives you a benchmark of where things are. I think there are three major wild cards that are going to be different this year. That's going to be really hard for pollsters to put a finger on. And the failures in polls are generally, from what we've seen in the last couple cycles, do more to, to misunderstanding what turnout will be and, and not what the turnout number will be, but who the people who turn out will be. Because that's really what ultimately the poll is based on, is um, you know, trying to figure out what modeling of what the electorate looks like. So there's three big wild cards here. One positive for Biden that we saw come out of Wisconsin is that the shift to vote by mail and for allowing more people to vote by mail and and an easier way to vote by mail greatly favored Democrats. People thought that it might favor them a little bit, but they, they are estimating that the vote by mail turnout increase is three to one Democrat to Republican based off what a normal election would be. So if you extrapolate that, for example, New York State is obviously not a swing state in the presidential election, but New York State has completely revamped their laws to allow anyone to vote by mail from home. And I think we're going to see this in a lot of places. Georgia, Pennsylvania maybe loosening restrictions. And in this case, it could really increase turnout among younger Democrats more so than Republicans, which will help shift what the electorate
2: is. Because I think it. on that, yeah, I think that that one in particular, I think it's interesting because if you think about if you're going to do vote by mail, that could help Democrats. As you say, the Wisconsin example, if you're not going to do vote by mail, then if you're a senior who's at risk, are you going to go right. to the polls? Also, that helps Democrats because even though Biden's right. polling better with seniors, he's still underwater compared to to President Trump.
1: Exactly. So so, so that's positive. But then on the flip side, In Trump's favor is Democrats have uh, historically seen success in the last few cycles, starting with Obama in 2008, by having really community oriented field and ground games. And that kind of stuff takes a lot of time to build. And if you're not able to open field offices and you're not actually able to engage local leaders out in the community face to face and door to door with their constituents and you can't build that early, you can't make that up. Whereas you can make up if your strategy, which Trump relied on last time, was, you know, winning, winning the air wars with a, a bigger spend on TV, bigger spends on digital and more targeted spends on digital. You can do that throughout this period. So it's going to be really interesting to see our Democrats able to adjust their field and ground game that has been critical in congressional seats that they've flipped in statewide seats that they flipped, and of course in 2008, which was was kind of the key to it all, can they win a a campaign if they have no ability to knock on doors?
0: So at the national level, do you, to move to a complete vote-by-mail policy, is that state-by-state, or does the national government pass that law?
1: It is state by state. Almost all voting laws across the country are individually granted to the states to decide how those, those laws are enacted. There are, are very few instances where the federal government um, can come in and has to have oversight to changes to voting law, which are typically based on states that have discriminated intentionally by race in past election law that the uh, U.S. Attorney's Office has oversight over changes that they make. And you'd be surprised. Brooklyn is one of those areas because of historical gerrymandering and things like that that has to get approval. So it's not just what you would think of deep red states or southern states.
0: So does that mean that you're going to see a lot more voting by mail in blue states and that's going to be counteracted in red states? So it's going to create just a larger divide?
1: Yes and no. A lot of states that we think of as blue states for the presidential election are not blue with their local legislatures, or they don't certainly have a, a what we call a trifecta in their local legislatures, which is control of the governor's mansion, what would be their their state house and their state senate, which you need to pass a lot of these laws. Again, New York's not a swing state, but going back to this example, in order to pass some of the voting laws in New York state, they actually need a constitutional amendment, which at minimum takes two years to to enact by any constitutional amendment. So there are a lot of barriers in making these changes. For example, like Oregon has full vote by mail. And even if every state wanted to go to that, they they can't do that in one election legally, except for the states that are allowing election changes to governors in emergency power due to coronavirus. So in a sense, the virus is speeding this along. It certainly is. In a lot of states that had no intention of vote by mail, are now looking at it and seeing if they can do it in a emergency temporary way. But I think that red states are going to also be forced to do this if coronavirus is as dangerous in November as it is now.
2: And there has been some push so that the federal government can pass universal vote by mail. But if they don't make a rule, then the states get to decide. And so Nancy Pelosi has called for vote by mail to be in the next coronavirus response package. But President Trump has done a couple different press conferences basically saying over my dead body because he thinks it's the surest way for him to lose reelection. Right. So.
1: And that's a great point. The federal government can make laws in relating to, to federal elections. So you can have situations where, for example, a governor is elected by a different set of rules than a U.S. senator. All
0: right. Should we talk about the state of Biden's campaign? So it seems like From the last two weeks, the allegations against Biden have felt fairly credible and he's been slow to respond to them, but it seems like he's at least given a response now. How do you think this has affected his election chances?
1: I think it's, to this point, hasn't hurt him significantly. A big part of that may have been kind of the lack of a deep dive media coverage into it, given everything else that's going on. I think that he did need to come out and say what he said. And I think he's hoping that this will this will be the end of it and he'll, he's doing it early enough that it won't have an effect. I think there's a lot of people both in the media and in the Democratic Party that are just rehashing Hillary's emails in their mind. And they don't want something like this to turn into a process story where it's like, where is the study? Where is the information? Where are the records? What's been released? Who's been doing it? The longer that that drags and drags and drags, the more it's not even about what actually happened. It's about this sort of cover up of it. So I think people are very, very nervous about that. And I do think that there's also, you know, Trump has been accused by dozens and dozens of women of of misconduct. And I think a lot of the mainstream media is saying, you know, this guy basically got away with it. Do we want to throw Joe Biden across the coals over this? knowing who his opponent is. Fair or unfair, I think that that kind of sentiment can't be ignored.
0: Well, it's crazy that Trump came to Biden's defense. Which, was <laughs> right,
1: which is no, not what you want. Oh,
0: I had missed, I had missed that. What, what did he say? He just said that he recommended to Joe Biden that he should fight the charges at any cost and that these type of things happen when you get famous, when you make enough money, which was just pretty insane to hear him say.
1: He's got to be thinking if this election comes down to, like, who has harassed more women, then it's bad for him, it, it, which is wild that that is a situation that we're in at this point.
0: Right. So it seems like this is an inevitable march. I mean, it, it it truly feels bizarre looking back six months that Joe Biden is now the presumptive nominee. Do we everyone was talking about how there was this progressive shift going on in the party. Now that's seems to be up in up in the air. How do you see these two wings? the moderate and the progressive side of things coalescing or not coalescing as things go forward?
1: I I think there has been a steady, slow but steady march left over the last eight years or longer, in fact, maybe in the last 12 years in the Democratic Party. And I don't think the fact that Biden is the nominee should take away from that fact. The fact that we're just having conversations about Medicare for all or student loan forgiveness in, in a general way shows that the left has... One, in a lot of ways, the divisiveness that people love to talk about, I think, is is not as real as it may seem. Sure, there's like a very and we've all heard this, a very loud, angry left that would never support Joe Biden, wants to throw flames at anyone who's even close to being established. But for the most part, I think that your progressive Democratic voter that supported Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders will be thrilled to vote for Biden over Trump on election day.
2: Because I think that maybe what's somewhat lost in this is even though Joe, Joe Biden maybe was a moderate compared to the Democratic field, his platform and kind of his positions are the most progressive for the Democratic Party in 50 years. And so I think that and there's a world in which him being the moderate, they have a better chance to win the Senate and they could actually get more done. So there's a, a world in which he can be this like actual progressive president if he says to, you know, he gets a Senate majority and says, "Okay, Elizabeth Warren, please write my healthcare bill or write my anti-corruption bill." That that could be an amazingly progressive piece of legislation. And he's there as the moderate to hammer home to Joe Manchin and the Kirsten Cinema and Scott Kelly who would be the moderate senators that, "Hey, you're voting for this. Like this is happening." So I think that's the hope and I think that's what Bernie and AOC and why a lot of them have come and rallied around him very quickly.
1: Right. I also uh, I think that he has shown his colleagues like you just mentioned AOC and Bernie that he, he, his heart is in the right place and he really is willing to listen. That's not just a talking point. When Biden is saying, you know, my door is open, I want to figure out what's best for for everybody. He's willing to listen to people. I think that the vice presidential pick is is going to be really telling. I don't think that Biden And this is just a hunch. I don't think he would do something like McCain and bow to pressures to pick someone just for the campaign. Someone who, like McCain, wanted Joe Lieberman. He wanted to bring the country together. He certainly didn't want Sarah Palin at first. But he went with someone that he was convinced by the strategist, you know, this will get the base fired up. This is the the opposite to what you are as an old white man. I don't see Biden doing that. I think, obviously, he believes strongly in the role of vice president and how he played that role. And so I think he's going to be looking for someone that can be a true partner, someone that's going to be really substantive. So I I don't think you're going to see like a wild choice there, like throwing a bone to the far left or anything that has a lot of star power to it. I think he'll pick someone he wants to work with.
0: Who do you see him wanting to work with?
1: I could see him wanting to work with Amy Klobuchar. They worked together in the Senate quite a bit. I think that that is one pick that would be problematic for the left. So I think that right now the former has to be Harris. Uh, she's a little bit more, more to the left than Klobuchar is. She's probably not even more to the left than Biden, but she sort of has a younger, more exuberant appeal to her. But is someone that I think he knows that he can get down to brass tax with and really work on policy with and can assign portfolios to.
2: Gonna be a we crazy switch? five months. Yeah. I think we should probably. All
0: right. So it really is. That was good. To, so Ben. ben give us an update on the latest news on Rim
3: So remdesivir. So the FDA this week granted an emergency approval of this drug on the basis of what's called a single-arm clinical trial. So what they were doing with this is they didn't actually compare it to a control treatment. So normally the way that you structure a clinical trial is you compare the drug plus standard of care to standard of care and see how much better the drug group does than uh, than the normal control group. So they didn't really do that here because this is an emergency situation. So basically what they did is they compared people who got the drug for five days versus people who got the drug for 10 days, because they wanted to make sure that people could take it quickly and they wouldn't do significantly worse on the drug. The major finding is that patients can leave the hospital about four days more quickly on average when you take remdesivir versus taking nothing. It does not have any kind of statistically significant impact on the need for ventilators or on mortality. So this has to be taken with a pretty big grain of salt. It seems like it's a fairly minor effect, but there is a statistically significant benefit, and it's on that basis that it was approved. So
0: are people going to start using it readily in hospitals? Like is everyone who comes in that has coronavirus going to be start being hopped up on remdesivir?
3: So they we're only testing it on patients who are severe, so patients who are not mild cases. So these are patients who have been hospitalized, whether or not they're in the ICU yet—that's—that's uh, that's unclear. But they have not been ventilated yet. So this is the only group that has been actually looked at in depth. They're doing additional trials on more mild cases and to see if it has a, you know, a more broad usage. But we'll have to see the data. To this point, are fairly unimpressive. If this were any kind of normal situation, I wouldn't expect this drug to have been approved. But obviously, given everything that's going on and the need to have at least one thing, they're uh, they're pushing forward with it.
0: I also read that there there someone in uh, I guess an uh, epidemiologist in Oxford has gotten a lot of really quick and good results on a vaccine. They, they're trying to rush it through the first two trials by as early as September. October is that? Have you heard of that? And how does that? How can you speed up trials of a vaccine?
3: Not super easily. Um, even if they get through the first two phases of the trial by September, I still don't think it'll be available for another twelve to eighteen months. Uh, the critical part of any vaccine trial is in phase three. So phase one and two tend to be a little bit faster, but phase three is where you broaden it to a bigger control group, and then you have to look for you know, at least months after the fact to make sure that there aren't kind of catastrophic effects. You have to follow up these patients to assess whether or not they actually developed immunity, that kind of thing. And like I've said before, I think the actual development of a vaccine isn't necessarily the going to take the longest time because it's fairly simple to screen vaccines like we talked about last week. You can sort of chop them up into random bits or, you know, semi-predictive random bits, see what works the best. And, uh, and go from there.
0: I, I love retouching every once, every couple of weeks on the idea that the virus came from a lab in Wuhan. So it seems like the Trump campaign or the Trump administration has sort of jumped on this as well. And now I'm hearing that countries are attempting to sue the Chinese government for reparations over this. What is the state of
2: figuring that out? What well, would
0: the process of that even look like?
2: And I think just to add there, I think there's Everyone should watch Secretary Pompeo this morning on Fox News. Sunday gave an interview where I think the first question was, "Do you think the virus was man-made?" Yes, I do. Second question: Well, the intelligence community has said they don't think it was man-made. Well, I agree with them. Third question: So, which is it? So it's kind of amazing because Trump definitely wants to say it's man-made, and so does you know Tom Cotton and the China hawks. But we're getting a little bit of a mixed message out of administration. But our theory from Six weeks ago is definitely more and more mainstream. So, Ben, you were uh, way ahead of the curve on this.
3: Yeah, I mean, so I don't want to, you know, sound like a huge hypocrite, but I'm not keen on agreeing with people like Mike Pompeo and Trump and um, the nutcases. I've been reading some of these papers that have come out from virologists who know far more about this topic uh, than I do. It's not exactly aligned with my field of expertise, but I. I just don't, I genuinely don't understand their interpretation. So the way that this virus works, basically, long story short, we know the receptor that it uses to get inside the human body, and or sorry, inside human cells, and it's called ACE. So it does this by using a type of protein called a spike protein. And this whole virus is 96% identical to bat coronaviruses that have been found. But the 4% that's different is right at the tip of the spike protein, and that's what allows it to interact with ACE, not only in humans, but in a variety of different, uh, different species, ironically, one of which is not really bats. It doesn't really do so well in bats. So this is why people are speculating that it's a secondary host, and then it jumps to humans. I think pangolins are the, the prime suspect there. But from my perspective, if I were to try and engineer a virus to get deliberately into human cells... That is exactly the part of the spike protein that I would make mutations to, I would screen those mutations against human cells, and then I would pick out the one that did best. So from my perspective, this degree of natural selection seems extremely artificial. Basically, the way natural selection works, <laughs> if we can get into this, you have a random rate of mutation throughout any genome. Any, any time you have uh, nucleic acids that are dividing, there's, a, there's an error rate. And sometimes those errors will lead to positive outcomes, and that's how you get evolution. So if this thing evolved naturally, you wouldn't expect it to be 96% completely identical everywhere else except for this 4% important bit where it actually interacts with human cells. This is what is throwing me for a loop. I don't understand how people are coming to the opposite interpretation, but this is this is just kind of my reading of it.
0: And so on a political level, what happens if... China, if it's proven, let's just jump forward, say five years, and they can somehow prove either through intelligence or lab jiggery that this was from that lab in Wuhan. Is there a precedent for? I was reading somewhere that the that the Chinese have a huge aversion to this because of reparations that they had to pay during a war, the Boxer Rebellion at the turn of the century, and that because of that. It's Xi Jinping sees this as a non-starter that there, there's no way that even if it was possible that this came from a lab, that the Chinese would be willing to take any credit for it. So how do we see this? If if this can
2: be proved, how do we see geopolitics moving over the next decade or so? So I would say I think I have two. Things. I think the one thing the U.S. like could do or the international community could do if this is proven, but even but Beijing won't acknowledge it is they could all boycott the 2022 Winter Olympics, which are in Beijing. So that'd be kind of like a big black mark if all of a sudden the entire West and the U.S. and et cetera doesn't go because of coronavirus beef. But I think the other thing that I think will happen is there's been a lot of companies that have had a huge part of their manufacturing chain in China. And between the tariffs and now the virus, that there's going to be a either bringing some of it back to the United States or making sure that only a certain percent of your total supply chain is in China. So maybe if right now it's 90 percent, you drop to 40 percent. And so you see more of a decoupling of China and the U.S. than we would have predicted. And or it happens faster than we would have predicted.
1: I think Dan is right to bring up the economic relationship between the two. I I have always felt that the United States and China are so intensely entwined in our economies right now that there's very little that can be done to shake that, be it an act of war, be it something like a virus. In my mind, the major companies of both countries and the governments of both countries would be very quick to smooth things over. That said, if what Dan is talking about does come to fruition and some of these major factories are moved to other parts of the world, or even back to the United States, that makes it a little bit easier to to put sanctions on them or to do things like boycotts. But I kind of feel like it might just blow over even if it was created in the lab, as long as it was, you know, some sort of accident that that put it out there, which it seems like that's the theory that people are are going with.
0: So maybe for our closing sections, what do you think of this recently confirmed video by i guess it's the state department but that of these two ufos or footage of ufos
2: flying over the coast i mean ufos are definitely real and i'm very excited that we're going to get to be able to dig into more dig into them more as a people
1: yeah i why all the secrecy who cares man let's have at it open up all the records all ufo records from all time area 51 or whatever it is Open it all up. Let's see what's underneath.
3: Yeah, do we, do we think this was like a test balloon to see what the level of public interest would be in this kind of thing? Should all of the records be released to distract from the fact that we are going through a horrible pandemic? Is that a thing we can get behind or no?
0: <laughs> well, I was wondering if this was sort of... Why, why now? I think these videos came out something like three years ago. So why would they confirm it now? Was that Trump asking doing anything he can to take the America's attention away from the coronavirus.
3: That's sort of my working theory. I'm just waiting you for him ahead. to release yeah. like all the JFK documents. That's right. kind of the next step, right?
2: Definitely happening. If happening, if this gets worse and we're all locked down again, he's going to be like, here's all the JFK film one day disclosed <laughs> and just distract everyone.
1: <laughs> Where on the list do you think that is between uh, uh UFOs, JFK docs, or start a war with Canada. Like, do you think those three things are on a list of his somewhere? Just
2: which one am I gonna do when it gets bad?
3: In case of emergency, break glass.
2: Right. I would say if you switch Mexico, then maybe it might be wow. That might be higher, right? Why build a wall when I can just invade? Oh, look at that. It
0: That's- is. It does make you wonder um, what the point of hiding all of this is exactly, because it, it seems like. People have been asking about these type of things for years. There are all all these locations people consider paranormal or whatever. And it seems like the government has been looking into them for years. So it definitely... This is the most confirmed I've ever been in my life, that aliens are actually on our planet right now. It seems like how could they not be?
2: Do you think Trump is one of them? It's a good idea.
0: His children sort of are an interesting... uh, (laughs) they could Jesus. be part alien
3: <laughs> <laughs> thanks to our special guest alex this week and thanks as always for listening you can follow us on twitter or instagram at what our point we hope that you and yours are staying safe and staying home